Live. It's America's longest running talk show on computers. It's Computer America, bringing you the biggest names in technology with guest interviews, new products, and your emails. Listen live at ComputerAmerica.com on any device around the world. Email the show at live at ComputerAmerica.com or find us on social media. Be sure to check out our website for contests, giveaways, show notes, live video stream, podcasts, and more. You're listening to Computer America. Hello and welcome into the Computer America show. We are the nation's longest running nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman, and I hope all of you are having a great day because we have a great show planned for you where we have the one the only mr scott Schober joining us here in just a little bit and if you haven't heard uh you know haven't heard one of our segments together then you are in luck because it's always a lot of fun and yeah a lot of great topics it's uh it, it's gonna be really good so everyone uh thank you for tuning into computer america and before we get started, a couple of things, including computer, uh, yeah, computeramerica.com. There we go. Almost forgot the website. Computeramerica.com. That's where you'll find everything and anything having to do with today's show. So if you'd like to, I don't know, check out the show notes or if you'd like a, a link to our guest website, anything of that nature, you'll find it at our homepage. Also, be sure while you're there to check out the live video feed brought to you by OWC and check out the social media contest, which is brought to you by Logitech. So all that and more at ComputerAmerica.com. Check it out. And in the meantime, I think we're just going to go ahead and jump right into this because he so graciously gives us an hour a month and we don't want to waste it. So everyone, like I said, author of Hacked Again, runs Berkeley Veritronic Systems and so much more. You know, uh, we're going to talk about it, but uh, everyone, Scott Schober and our resident cybersecurity expert. So, Scott, how you doing? Welcome back on. Oh, I'm doing great. Great to be back with you, Ben. Yeah, it's uh, so today's show is going to be a lot of fun. But before we get started, uh, just a couple of things. The first one, I want to say that um, you know, uh, I was just kind of uh, cleaning up after dinner the other night, and Craig called me into the other room because someone was on Insider Edition or Inside Edition. Uh, you know, talking about uh, one of the topics we're going to talk about today, which is possibly a bugged soccer ball. And who else but uh, Scott Schober was on television uh, giving the interview. So first of all, hey, we saw, we saw you on TV. Cool, cool, cool stuff, man. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and uh, certainly an interesting uh, topic for sure because it crosses so many things. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit later. But uh, the other thing I wanted you to talk about real quick would be uh, your credentials. Why, uh, you know, kind of what makes you qualified to speak on hacking, cybersecurity and that kind of thing. What is your day job? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my, my company, Berkeley Baritronic Systems, is a 46 year old company, and we focus on a lot of wireless threat detection tools. Anything that can be used by cyber threat agencies, DOD agencies, to hunt down and find uh, cell phones, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth threats, anything that can cause damage or cyber hacks, and our, our tools are used around the globe to constantly fight back against the, the bad guys. So it's certainly a fun job developing these tools and finding out how we can keep the world a, a safer place. And uh, we're primarily a design company, but we also manufacture the products as well. And uh, also do a fair amount of work with uh, regards to cybersecurity. Our company a few years ago was targeted, 
and we face and continue to face continual hacks. And uh, the more I learn, the more I try to teach other people, and the harder it gets for me to stay safe. And uh, jotted it down in, in my first book, Hacked Again. I'm working on finishing up the second book, Hacked Again, Lessons Learned, as I keep learning from, from many colleagues and acquaintances how to stay safe in this crazy world of cybercrime. Yeah, and you know those uh, some of those basics that we talk about they help uh, you know not just not just everyone that listens to them, but even myself. I mean, just today uh, we use a you know kind of a partner program uh, you know to handle some of the advertising here on the show, and I recently uh, actually just today before the show uh, checked out one of the emails, and it was someone I had never heard of from the company, but they had the right handle. Uh-huh. And it was like the thing that tipped me off about the email was that every every line was a different font, a different size font. And like it was Uh, copy and paste and cobbled together. And they're like, click on this link. And it didn't really give any kind of context as to what I was going to find or why I had to click on it. And, you know, just just even today myself, I sent it right back and said, hey, what's this about? And I still don't know <laughs> what's in the attachment. So the basics are important. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I actually had one very similar kind of uh, convincing looking scare. All of my international resellers were contacted with somebody that spoofed my email mm. and asking them to pay a large sum of money. And it really looked like it was for me. I had four of my resellers reach out to me and say, is this really from you? Do you want me to send the money? And I'm like, stop, wait. <laughs> and I, I got nervous because I have about 40 international resellers that I'm actively communicating with. And geez, they could have really made away with somebody's money. And, and I would never even know about it because they completely spoofed the email. But fortunately enough, the, their eyebrows were raised and uh, they reached out and, and talked to me and I was able to stop it in the tracks. But we got to be very careful. If it looks so, even a little bit suspicious, like you mentioned, as I saw, question it and stop Right. It it doesn't really hurt anyone to be, you know, to be curious, to ask questions. I, I think really if, if there was, uh, you know, there's a lot of basics that we can tell people, but uh, one that I think stops a lot of people in their tracks, actually, and I might bring up another one, uh, just the other day, they were warning about an Apple Care scam uh, as well, but mm-hmm. it's just ask questions, you know, uh, ask them to, you know, verify who they, you know, they are, who they say they are. If if you just ask questions, eventually you get to the point where it's like, all right, these people are just you know making it up as they go along. Exactly, and, and they're so successful, and that's why we want to be careful because they're going to use what we're comfortable with and familiar with. Right. So with all that being said, let's get to some of your topics that you have here. And if you are following along with the uh, with the video portion, we're going to throw up some YouTube videos and uh, and some articles. But uh, let's go ahead and start with one. So just a couple of weeks ago, uh, if you are outside of outside of the United States, uh, there's this thing called soccer or football, whatever you want to call it. And it's pretty popular. It's uh, it's almost the most popular thing in the world. And so just a couple of weeks ago, there was the World, uh, you know, the World Cup and essentially all eyes were on, uh, you know, were on the soccer game. So Vladimir Putin, you know him, he's the one who hosted him along with Russia, hosted the games. And so President Trump went to go visit uh, with Putin over other matters of security, but essentially gave him uh, kind of a, you know, kind of a souvenir which was a soccer ball. You know, pretty cool because obviously the World Cup, all that stuff, good things. Bad things though, because you, uh, you know, you actually, and you reported on this, this is what we kind of saw you on TV for, but I guess the idea of, you know, a soccer ball being anything more than a soccer ball because it's pretty low tech, it's full of air, it's usually just plastic and rubber. Uh, You know, there's not a lot to a soccer ball except for the one that uh, I guess Vladimir Putin gave to Donald Trump. So talk about the soccer ball. How, how did this happen? What happened? Please. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, it kind of started for me actually the, the day before um, I got contacted by CNN and they were trying to find some evidence that there was actually some uh, bugging or spying possibly as a result of the technology that was inside of a soccer ball. And I was 
you know, kind of a little shocked. And I was like, no, I, I really don't think that, that they put a bug or a spy in there per se. And even if they did, um, the Secret Service has got to clear everything 100% before it would be in somebody's possession, before it would get into the White House, so on and so forth. Um, and the, the next day, I get a call from Inside Edition, and they said, hey, we, we got to get you into the, the studios right away. we got a car on the way. Boom, we want you to cut open one of these soccer balls and show us what's actually inside one. So they obtained one with a uh, actually a chip in there or a tag, and it's near-field communication, which, again, we're, we, we talk about this all the time. We're using Apple Pay or Google Pay, and that's really the means it works. In this particular case, inside the Adidas soccer ball, they embedded this cool little uh, tag, and it's passive, so it only transmits when you bring the actual reader. And I tried it even with my phone or a typical NFC application, and I could read, and it launches a video on my phone so I could watch soccer highlights and so on and so forth. And uh, so it's pretty cool, but it's really a marketing uh, ploy that Adidas put in there. It is really not a device that is listening or spying in, although the media really was hoping that um, <laughs> we could prove that, prove the other one, I guess you could say. Oh, so, oh, okay. So Adidas put, um, you know, because Adidas was, uh, I guess, the official soccer ball manufacturer for, exactly. uh, you know, for the games. And I guess this, this chip, I mean, you and I both know probably better than uh, a lot of people in the media, you know, in the media in general about the capabilities of this thing. Uh, you said that it's passive. So, I, I, I mean, other than really, you know, just kind of giving a URL like this doesn't have anything like an accelerometer. It doesn't have anything like, uh, you know, no. any, any kind of sensors to measure even things like movement or where it's been or anything like that, right? You're correct, 100%. And, and that's really the key. This doesn't have a built-in microphone or anything else. Really, the, the way it simply works is when you bring your near-field communication reader, in my case, it's an iPhone, bring it within about three, four centimeters, it magnetically couples, electrically in a sense it, it, it's an antenna that's radiating something back in this case it's we're communicating back to my phone and allows me to it automatically puts the url up into my browser and boom you can watch soccer videos and things like that so, so it's a real great way to get fan engagement that's the bottom line so my question is uh you know, other than spooking uh you know than spooking people why, you know, do you think that this, uh, actually, first of all, I'm sorry. The first question is, did Adidas uh, advertise this? Did they advertise that, hey, these chips are going to be in here and you can read it? Or is this like an Easter egg and if only if you know about it? Uh, I mean, was this advertised? Uh, yes, it was. Um, part of the challenge, I think, was, though, when they were first approached, they, they didn't comment on it. And which, when you don't comment on something immediately it causes more speculation and, and then people start thinking, oh my gosh, is there something really there? I think what happened in the world of the media reporting too fast is there is actually an Adidas smart ball. And what that does is have an actual sensor in it. And it's a Bluetooth low energy that connects to an app to your phone. So when you kick it, when it rolls, a whole bunch of other things, you can get information about that. That was released about last third quarter last year, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think the media looked at that and said, ah, there's probably a microphone and a Bluetooth and a sensor <laughs> and a gyroscope. And, a, you know, everything under the sun, I started to imagine that really wasn't there. The special uh, soccer ball for this was really for fan engagement. It's near field communication. It is truly passive. There's no microphone or anything else. And I think I've probably been asked the question maybe 150 times <laughs> since I first uh, talked about it because people are still speculating, well, what if, is it possible? Sure, it's possible. But they probably would have used another type of technology there if they were really going to properly eavesdrop on, on president to president. Well, and I, so the second question is, if this thing is simply a way to, uh, you know, get direct people to URL or to engage your fans, I mean, looking at the soccer ball, they obviously went with something a little bit more techy. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of picky. Uh, well, it's kind of uh, pixelated and uh, has kind of uh, a, a unique pattern to it. Why did they put this little chip in as opposed to, I'm thinking, you know, a QR code, which would just kind of print right on, right on the label uh, and it wouldn't have any of the... Uh, 
Do you think it's just, hey, you know, we could do this. It's cheap enough. Uh, near field communication is ubiquitous enough. It's fine. Or do you think that there was any kind of reason instead of a QR code? Because honestly, it sounds like it could have done the same thing. Yeah, I think in this particular case, they probably could have done a, a QR code. I think you're spot on with that. Um, other than maybe if the soccer balls kicked in the mud and rain and stuff, maybe the ink wears over time. But other than that, I think most people that buy this, this ball is like 150, 160 bucks. And I think since all the media splurged the price and after the games, it's actually going up in value. So it's becoming a collector's item. Interestingly enough, if you look at the cool pixelated patterns you touched on, it's actually designed after Telstar, which is the first communication satellite that went up in space back in the early 1960s. I believe it was 1962 or so. And actually, my grandfather worked on that satellite wow. when he worked at Bell Labs up in Murray Hill, where our company was founded in Berkeley Heights, which is kind of interesting tie from a, a technology and how it goes full circle. And now I'm talking about it some, <laughs> geez, what is it, 50, 60 years later or something. Pretty amazing. But, but I think since it was a communication satellite they designed it after, I wanted to add some type of modern communications inside of it. And your field communication print these tags at very low cost. So I think that's really impetus behind the whole thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, very, very cool. And, uh, and by the way, someone in the chat room mentioned maybe the ball that was actually used was different than the standard ball. Uh, these are, as you said, kind of collector's editions. These were probably not the ones that were actually on the soccer field. Uh, the ones you know, actually yeah. used during the game were probably still Adidas, but, you know, uh, regulation, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, no, but still very cool and very cool to see you on TV cut, cutting into one of these if they are collector's editions now and uh, <laughs> yeah, and getting to the bottom of this and spreading the yeah. good word that, uh, you know, not everything electronic is uh, is a super spy chip. So, yeah, and I, I think it was the closest I ever came to feeling like I was on a cooking show without taking in the, the scalpel there and slipping off and cutting off my fingers. So, <laughs> I feel a successful blood. <laughs> Absolutely. So, all right, there's that one. Uh, very, very cool to see. So, let's go ahead and jump right over to let's see, we have a, we have a couple topics here, and I think one that uh, really stood out to me. And we didn't get a chance to talk about this, saw it a couple days ago, but um, I'm glad that you have it. If you want to skip over to the uh, the National Security Agency or uh, uh, the NSA has yet to fix security holes that helped Snowden leaks. So, you know, there was a giant book that, uh, you know, that, Snowden, that either Snowden leaked or someone else did. It was essentially a bunch of zero-day exploits and a bunch of other known hacks for known operating systems. And I'm not sure if it's uh, that that they're talking about or anything else, but essentially this kind of speaks to, uh, you know, the fact that even if you find a security, uh, a security hole and then you patch it, uh, actually implementing those patches, even those who probably stand the most to patch over this, be it healthcare, be it uh, cities, be it uh, government agencies, people are lazy. People are inherently lazy or they don't feel like they can talk about the story and the NSA, the people who you'd think would be security minded, uh, not so much. Exactly. You make a brilliant point there, Ben. In this event here with the whole Snowden revelations, that was what, about five years ago. Yeah. And they clearly outlined and it felt like week after week, more and more poured out about all these vulnerabilities within the NSA. And I, I guess the fact that they had an audit done recently and they realized that the digital policies, the vast majority of them have not been addressed at all within five years after all of these revelations, which were really, uh, I guess, a, a, a tell to, to how weak sometimes they, they handle the actual security of private information. It's, it's got to be scary for somebody that's a, a U.S. citizen that realizes they entrust their, their, you know, their, their, their personal information to the NSA, and if it's misused or lost or somebody hacks in, they have access to all this type of stuff. Really, really scary there. So um, they don't go into a whole lot of detail for obvious reasons. Um, what are the specific vulnerabilities and exploits that hackers can get access to? But the fact that they're not patched and taken care of after five years, 
I think that's just, just screaming negligence there. And the, the NSA really has to roll their sleeves up and, and start focusing in on it. And, and there's another story that I guess kind of broke today, too, in line with this, is that there's in Manhattan, there's a big meeting with the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And what what they're finding is that they're realizing with all these revelations and exploits out there, hackers are, are attacking the government. They're also going after the critical infrastructure. And, and basically, Department of Homeland Security, they're setting up a, a whole new agency, a whole new group there, so they can combat all these threats. And they're working with taking government agencies and private sectors, bringing them to together for the first time. It's going to be based out of D.C., and, and they're going to be dealing with how do we better work together, public and private, to combat cyber threats so we can react quicker and share information. Instead of keeping information all quiet, as NSA typically does in different agencies, they're all silos, they want to now bring public and private together and share this information, which in theory, if they did that, it would probably help prevent a lot of these major cyber attacks. But what, what it also screams to me is they're getting ready for the big one. It's going to be the cyber 9-11, the cyber hurricane. Get ready. They're not going to take out cars. They're not going to take out airplanes. They're going to be going after computers and critical infrastructure. So we better get ready for a wild ride soon if they don't shore up this stuff and start taking measures immediately because there's too many vulnerabilities still out there. You know, and I, I guess part of that is um, the idea that private entities are, you know, better trusted than government agencies. And I think to a large extent, like, I don't feel like the government's infrastructure for cybersecurity, not, you know, strictly warfare, just general cybersecurity, they're probably mm-hmm. not going to do better than a lot of private owned or, you know, private company uh, research facilities, you know, where they research these and, you know, create the definitions that everyone uses if you use any kind of reputable, uh, you know, cyber security, well, cyber security, uh, malware, antivirus, anti-malware, that kind of thing. I think that the public is better at that. Public sector is better at that. But at the same time, we saw just a couple of months ago with the government doing away completely with uh, with Kaspersky Labs software. We saw them uh, mm-hmm. you know, completely block the, uh, you know, what was it? There was a, a Huawei, the cell phones from Huawei from entering the U.S. because they were concerned about, uh, you know, Chinese uh, spying on Chinese devices in the U.S., and essentially it's you can like i have no doubt that the private sector is better at cybersecurity than the government but at the same time who you know who does the government trust like how are they making these partnerships do you think that they're uh you know that they already have partnerships in place or because any private software can be you know hacked or the company themselves can be compromised and someone puts a, a you know a hole in there uh, how does the government choose who to trust in in this fight? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, that's a great question. It's got to be a really careful vetting process. And you can't just partner with the company just because they're an American company, for example, because uh, really any company has the potential, as you mentioned, for an insider threat to slip some code in there, slip some malware into the main code that that could cause havoc and it gets into government computer systems and devices and so on and so forth. So they have to have a very careful vetting process. It even sounded like to, to an extent they're going to be knocking on cybersecurity experts doors to take them on, be it as an employee or probably more likely as a consultant mm-hmm. if they're working in a private company. So anybody that's, that's in cybersecurity or looking to get into cybersecurity, you may start getting some phone calls from the government, DHS, <laughs> Say, hey, can 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 you help out here? We want to be able to look closer at some of these systems and find vulnerabilities and see if we could prevent. Almost like you go do a vulnerability assessment or a pen test within a, a company before a hacker can get to you. You want to find your weaknesses, and I think the government's smart enough to realize the weaknesses are there. We're having trouble finding them fast enough, and hackers are finding them pretty quick. They need help, and they need help right away. Right. So any help is better than, uh, you know, than what they've been doing before. And, you know, this article that mm-hmm. you, uh, you know, that you brought by Engadget, uh, 
you know, we talked about the basics earlier. You know, you got a suspicious email. Uh, your, you know, your resellers got suspicious emails. They were fortunately, uh, you know, smart enough to call you and ask what was up. Uh, I received one. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of, you know, kind of the common sense. And then, of course, the government would have a step up even beyond that. You know, some showed uh, like having two people uh, access, you know, having access to the same file at the same, like two people have to give permission to allow code mm-hmm. to run on the network and things like that. I mean, they haven't implemented even the basic stuff. So I kind of hate to say it, but if there's going to be some kind of, you know, uh, cyber monsoon, uh, you know, that's going to come and hit, uh, you know, critical infrastructure at, you know, I kind of fear that it's not, really all that preventable i I think the one in atlanta was uh you know just everyday workers on their computers uh clicking on bad links and it locked up like the entire computer system of atlanta like they had to go back and to pen and paper i feel like you know regardless of what happens you you can't stop that that easily that that's a that's a training that's a knowledge issue that's not a you know uh it's not a good software issue yeah, and I think with a lot of cases, you make a good point with Atlanta, and, and certainly even take that out and extrapolate it to the government. It's almost like a big giant wheel, and that wheel's got motion. It can't stop when somebody hacks into it. Somebody clicks on a link or a phishing attack or whatever. The damage starts. It's really hard to stop it. It takes time. It takes energy. So I think they realize they've got a ton of money. They should spend that money up front to be proactive to prevent in the first place to have vulnerability, get them out of there with vulnerability, shore it up, make it really tough for hackers to get in. So that will save them in the long run, the embarrassment, the cost, the downtime across all these different government agencies, because it could be at one point crippling and then it'll take the next step. It'll start to affect people so, and the infrastructure. Yeah. So not to, uh, not to get political or anything like that, but I have to mention that, in the you know in this current administration, I believe they had like a cybersecurity uh, you know cybersecurity czar or whatever you want to call them, who uh, they recently let go. He was part of the NSA or Department of Homeland Security, not sure which one, but he has not been replaced. How important do you think uh, you know combating what's going to happen in the realm of cybersecurity? How important is it to have a single? Uh, I guess, administrator and, or how important is it, you know, or, or is that just not important and you just need good people, uh, you know, kind of doing the day-to-day operations? Well, I think it is, it is uh, imperative to have somebody look at it from the private sector since we, we try to stay out of politics and all the craziness there, but just look at that model within a corporation, you've got a chief information security officer. Uh, that individual is really heading the ship when they're thinking about keeping the company moving forward to protect certainly uh, the computer networks from, from cyber, but all other aspects that intertwine into cyber, even what happens if you do get breached, how do you handle it? What happens to the brand when your company is breached? Damage control, insurance, the IT staff, so on and so forth. So everybody kind of falls underneath that position. In fact, the chief information security officer must used to be looked at as a lower position. They actually have a seat on the board typically now. They're getting top dollar. Everybody's looking to the, the man or the woman who's in that position to, to, get, uh, to get answers to prevent a major cyber tragedy within an organization. So I think the same should be held true within the government. You want to look to the individual that holds that position, I don't think you look up to the top to Trump or somebody else in the administration who probably doesn't know a whole lot about cyber and can't give proper direction quickly if there ever was a major attack. Right. No, it's, uh, you know, of course, that's the thing is that not a lot of it, you, you saw this firsthand when it came to the soccer ball that we talked about earlier. Not yeah. a lot of, no, not like, I think cybersecurity guy, you know, and I talk to, I'm going to lump all of you together. I talk enough to you people, and I'm going to say you people, uh, that I think you guys know what's going on, and you have a very powerful, you know, kind of, uh, you know, communication b- between one another. You talk to people, but uh, you saw with the soccer ball, you can pound the pavement every single day for year after year to try to get the message out. But then when the first thing, uh, you know, kind of abnormal happens or something out of the ordinary, uh, 
uh, everyone jumps to, you know, kind of what they don't know and say, hey, is this X, Y, Z? It's, uh, yep. I, I, I think having someone who knows what's going on uh, speak intelligently and form that plan is better than just someone who's like, uh, you know, security is important. Uh, malware is bad. We need to do something. Like you need someone who actually knows what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, you got to get in the trenches and not just talk about the problems. Because too many people focus just on the problems, but rather look to what are some of the positive things? What are some solutions? What do we learn by our mistakes? What do we learn by the, the, the vulnerabilities so we don't keep going down the same road again and again and again? So what you're saying is we need another firewall. I, I understand completely. So uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everyone, uh, music means we're going to take a break. So uh, everyone, we're talking to Mr. Scott Schober, author of Hacked Again. And of course, hey, our resident cybersecurity expert. When we come back, we're going to talk about some other topics, including Venmo. If you haven't heard of that, well, hey, there's a scam going around. We're going to talk about Facebook because that is related and more. Everyone else, stay tuned. Computer America, right after this. Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare... What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? Low-cost airlines. With one call to low-cost airlines, you'll drastically slash your travel costs. We're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations. Where would you like to go? London, Rome, Costa Rica, Australia? Wow, that's cheap. So why wait? Call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the U.S. or international. Our prices are so low, we can't publish them. The only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airlines travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. That's 800-215-4461. We are all Brother Wolf. Ten years ago, a group of locals banded together to create positive change. We took animals into our homes, held adoption events at local retailers, and talked to the community about our mission to help build a no-kill Asheville. A decade later, we have achieved so many victories for animals in need. There's been so much progress, yet there's still so much to do. As part of our year-long celebration, we encourage you to become a member of our special Compassionate Circle program. With a monthly donation of $10 or more, you will have behind-the-scenes access to the work we are doing at Brother Wolf. Our goal is to reach 1,000 members because we receive no government funding. Working together, we can help build and sustain no-kill communities. Learn more at CompassionateCircle.BWAR.org. We are a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. And welcome back to the Computer America Show. It is 32 minutes past the hour. And by the way, if you missed any part of today's show, if you're just joining us, welcome into the program. And if you missed any part, please, please, please feel free to head on over to ComputerAmerica.com. Right at the top, where the podcasts are, it's simply today's show in its entirety. Hey, rebroadcast wherever podcasts are heard. So iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, in uh, many, many more places. So, uh, yep, welcome back. And we are talking to Scott Schober, cybersecurity expert, author of Hacked Again. And yeah, so Scott, we wrapped up our last story. I think we're going to go ahead and skip on over to another. And why don't we go ahead and talk about this whole thing with Twitter? Because, uh, you know, just like a lot of these stories, uh, there's another tie in for today where, uh, you know, so we're going to hit on Twitter and then we're also going to talk about the results on bots and fake traffic and uh just recently a lot of attention has been brought to the idea of fake reviews on on amazon which i think ties in pretty nicely with bots on twitter so uh you have this article here from the verge uh, and yeah please go ahead and, and uh, take it away yeah and i think it is kind of interesting and all of us use twitter in the world that we're in with technology wireless media and just the fact that they dropped over a million um, of these fake bots, these are fake accounts 
across the board, it greatly affected a lot of the um, Twitter users because many of these people have followers, and, and we know that many people bought followers, and they spend a lot of money on their basically fake bots, so on and so forth, and then they start learning that these fake bots are retweeting, and, and at one point there was about the, the rumors of about a third of the traffic on Twitter are robots retweeting tweets and likes and so on and so forth. So it gets to the point where you wonder how valuable is it anymore if somebody hits a like button? You don't know if it's real. Is it a real person that just wear that? Or is it completely automated? Is it a robot? Why is that so important and who cares? To me, it all comes down to the revenue. Think about companies are spending money on ads, on different social media platforms. If you're spending money and you find out a third of these people that you thought are clicking or liking or this or that are re really not clicking or liking a particular uh, uh, tweet, mm -hmm. then guess what? Your ad dollars are going out the window. And I think that's what the big wake-up call is, that too many people put their trust in the, the numbers when they see how many followers somebody has. And a lot of it's vanity, I'm sure. It makes you feel good. Hey, I, I got X number of new followers today and so on and so forth. But the downside of it is a lot of it's just fake. And, and just like you mentioned, even these fake reviews for Amazon, you can pay people to review things. And it, it's frustrating when, at least I know for myself, to even trying to sell my book on Amazon, you work hard and you appreciate when somebody reviews a book and takes the time to write about it and you thank them. Yet when you see other people that have got gazillions of reviews <laughs> and they're, they're poorly written and they're this and that, but somebody gives them five stars, five stars, five stars, they actually get up at the top of the list and they sell more yeah. books. And you think, it's cheating. It's not fair. That's reality in the world of Twitter and the yes. world of Amazon. They're all trying to crack down and starting now to affect their bottom line. And consumers are getting a wiser. So, and I think that more than just revenue is, you know, kind of what strikes me most is the fact that when you have these fake Twitter bots and, you know, you said a third, I think that any number that's going to be thrown out there is going to be even short of what the reality is. Because, <laughs> <Probably true. laughs> yeah, because Twitter doesn't really verify like they don't make you attach your twitter account to uh you know to a phone number or they don't you know really do a good job of verifying that it's one person to one account so there's a lot of fakes out there and i think more than revenue uh this also has to do with uh you know maybe in a, you know, maybe our next story will be the whole facebook thing but uh it has to do with the idea of what is viral? You know, what are people paying attention to? Uh, you ask the question, why, why do people care? And it's one of those things where you can go out and you can say hashtag uh, chocolate pudding is too chocolatey and you can, you can buy enough retweets that the trending, you know, what's, what's going on in the world, you know, that would normally go to, there was an earthquake in Italy, there was, uh, uh, you know, a monsoon in the, in Southeast Asia, like big world events that people would like to take, you know, take notice of. Instead, they're looking at my stupid, you know, uh, pudding is too, is too chocolatey <laughs> because I paid enough money that, uh, you know, and other people look at it and it takes on a life of its own. It's the same thing that happened with Facebook. It's the same thing that's happening with Twitter. It's this idea that a million people retweeted my tweet, so you need to care about it too because a million people cared about it. I think that's the big problem for me is just like the Amazon, uh, like you're talking about, you spend all your time writing this great book. Someone else puts out a literal book. You know, we talk about this on Amazon, uh, you know, books. There was a guy who... Uh, you know, it wasn't even so much about the content of your book. It's about how many pages you can get your readers to actually read. And he said, huh. buy my book for a dollar and flip to page 838. And <laughs> there is a link to a URL where you're entered for a chance to win $10,000. You are essentially buying a lottery ticket every time you bought this guy's book and he was getting paid way more than that by Amazon because people were reading 800 pages of his book when they were it's <laughs> it's it's cases of gaming the system rather than the system you know playing up the strengths of the people who put the effort into it i think that's my big problem with it yeah 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 and what i think it does is that, to your point it kind of waters down 
the content. The medium is not believed in that much. And a lot of it goes back to we hear all these chants of, of fake news, this and that. I don't, I don't like to go down that path, really. But uh, all, all, all media is not fake, certainly. But there is a lot of stuff out there that is misreported and corrected uh, tomorrow in the, in, the, in the tiny fine print below that nobody really sees. But so much information is out there now and re-regurgitated through the world of Twitter and all these other social platforms. And I think some of them are just a waste of time. And other stuff, it's actually some good news and good articles and good information. So it's getting harder and harder to sort through all the minutia to find stuff that's got real meat and some value where you could learn something, where you could take actionable uh, uh, you know, item and, and do something with it in your life. So I think this just clouds the water when we realize there's millions of fake bots and all these other things going on out there. It can be a little bit disparaging. It, it it can be, and I know plenty of people working in media who buy into it. They say, you know, if you aren't playing that game, then, you know, even if you don't want to put up the front, then, you know, what are you doing? It's uh, it, it can be a little disheartening when you actually see what's going on. But at the same time, I want to ask you, is there, a, you know, do you think there's a light at the end of the tunnel for Twitter? Uh, do you think that Twitter as a platform, you talked about, you know, not having to care about numbers, but... I think when people see, you know, a million uh, Twitter accounts being closed down, the investors are all shaking their head going, what a horrible thing. They just lost a million users. And I think, you know, people who would really appreciate Twitter would go, that's a great thing. There's a million more accounts. I don't have to scrutinize and see if it's a real person or a fake account. Um, You know, I, I think that even investors who I guess ultimately matter at the end of the day more than users they, I guess, would be happier if there were more bots than there were deleted accounts. I, I, I guess, how does how does Twitter get out of this? Well, I, I think Twitter is finally doing the right thing. Right. Scrubbing the accounts. You want to get rid of the spam. You want to get, get rid of the robots. And you want to get rid of all the things associated to this high-pressure sales tactic, garbage email, spams. Um, anything that's going to have a negative experience associated with Twitter for the average user is going to have them abandon the platform. So if they want to maintain a strong brand and grow it, and part of the problem is their brand, their, their, their user base is really not growing exponentially. They haven't figured out, in my opinion, how to truly monetize the platform. Yet the irony of it is turn on any television station, what do you see? Everybody's got the Twitter handle everywhere. I see it on people's cars. I see it on people's business cards. I see it on you know, TV stations, every news reporter. So everybody uses the platform. They haven't really focused in on how to properly monetize it. Just people are frustrated with all these stupid bots and spam and other things that waste their time. So kudos to them for finally getting rid of all the crap of it and focusing on the core. And I think users will reward them by now spending more on advertising by using the platform and trusting it more. Right. So I, I'm, I'm right there with you. If, uh, if they're able to get rid of the bots, I think just having that honest communication with, uh, you know, with an audience is much, much more valuable than looking like you have a conversation with your audience. And uh, yeah, I, 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 despite the fact that they're, uh, you know, that their projections went down, the fact that their stock went down, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I think that this is ultimately a good thing, and I hope to see a lot more of it. I mean, even the article that we have uh, listed in the show notes that you provided says that they're mm-hmm. going to close down millions more in the next couple of months. So yeah. let's hope that they get even uh, even stricter, because honestly, it's not that hard to find uh, some of these spam accounts. So let's tie that one in real yeah. quick with Facebook. And I think it's loosely related. I can't tell exactly what led to Facebook's decline, but uh, a lot of people are pinning it on, you know, you mentioned it, fake news. And just, you know, the investigation into Facebook as a company and its role as a news provider slash, uh, you know, kind of user growth. So talk about this. Why did this article stand out to you? Other than the fact that, you know, wasn't too long ago, they lost $120 billion of market capital in 24 hours. 
Yeah, that, that in itself is scary because what is that quantified in, in the headlines there? They lost, uh, that's the largest one-day drop in U.S. history. That that headline stood out to me and saying, wow, it wasn't helping appreciate. It helps you appreciate as a company how big Facebook really is, how big their footprint is, how big the ad dollars are spent on Facebook. Um, and, and the irony of the whole thing is, they, they mentioned if you read into the more fine print of the article, Facebook revenue increased 42% in the quarter. To me, if I had a company and the revenue in that quarter increased 42%, I'd say, wow, that's fabulous. <laughs> Yet, they missed analyst projections. But what does that mean? The analysts are hoping for a little bit more. So who pays the price? Facebook shareholders get slammed. And, and that's what kind of stinks there. What, what I think what we're, we're appreciating is you look back in history without regurgitating all the stuff. Think about what's on people's minds. That, well, the Russian interference during the 2016 election, we talked to Cambridge Analytica, the whole data privacy scandal, uh, uh, GDPR, the, the general data protection regulation that throughout Europe there, that cost Facebook about a million users there. You, you've got constant articles about privacy issues hate speech, fake news. Um, they have to combat all of the negative that they've been thrown in the past couple of quarters. And they, they committed to saying that they're going to hire 20,000 new employees within Facebook to improve security, to monitor this stuff very closely. And I think all of that's good. But at the bottom line, when I look at Facebook and look at its footprint here in the U.S. with, I don't know, approximately I think 185 million users just in the U.S., they're actually much broader outside of that or on, the, on a global platform. It hasn't really grown much. It's kind of stagnant in the U.S. and Canada. They need to grow their footprint outside the U.S. internationally to really start to garnish uh, new revenue streams through advertising and other means like that. In other words, the U.S. market's saturated, and there's too many players in the world of social media. they got to change their game up, and one way to do that is probably tighten up security and take care of all this fake news and privacy and hate speech so on and so forth. I personally don't use Facebook. I'm not a huge fan of the platform. Mm-hmm. I do respect and understand why everyone else does use it. So perhaps I'm a little bit biased when, when I see articles like this. You know, and it's it speaks to another event that happened about a week ago where it was the wild ride of 24 hours that you mentioned, you know, opening up new revenue, new revenue streams for Facebook. And for a while there, Facebook was unable to get into uh, the Chinese market because China uses, uh, I'm not sure if it's Baidu or uh, some other service that China uses as a Facebook replacement, but it's tightly controlled by the, by the Chinese government. It's, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about the human rights violations that they're doing, but essentially they don't want Facebook in China whatsoever. And that's 1.3 billion people who are suddenly coming into the middle class, who are suddenly uh, going to be buying products. And, you know, Facebook has been trying very hard to get in there. Within the span of 24 hours, Facebook was allowed to open a pilot program in China. Everyone was shocked. And 24 hours later, someone higher up in in the food chain said, Whoa, whoa, whoa! No, never mind. Facebook's not allowed to come in here. Uh, they're trying to make large headway into India by even providing people internet just to get onto Facebook. I think that your hope of better security, better uh, vetting of content, that's going to take an extreme backseat to getting China, India, and Africa onto the platform and growing the user base. In other countries, that it's security is, is just not going to be as important as getting more eyeballs. I feel. Yeah, I, I, your point's well taken. I think that's down the list pretty far. I, I think the biggest uh, uh, challenger to Facebook in China is a company called Tencent. Yes, and I think it, it, it's the, the one of the richest men in the world there within China. There that that owns that. They're also uh, the the owner of WeChat, which is very widely accepted. Uh, around the globe, and I think that's what's giving Facebook the run for the money, as they say, really challenging for them to get into a platform in China. It's going to be tough for competition because it's very regulated. 
and censor. Right. Uh, although there was another, uh, let's see. So, so far, I think Facebook owns Instagram, which I think gives them a little bit of Correct, something yeah. to hedge. Uh, and then Facebook also owns, uh, I want to say it's like Telegram or something like that. Um, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. WhatsApp. Uh, Facebook owns WhatsApp, which is also a competitor to, uh, you know, to that one as well. So, uh, yeah, Facebook is trying a lot of things, um, tackling the fake news problem. They, they make a good show of it. They say, hey, we're going to hire 10,000 people to really monitor and vet uh, these sources. But, you know, just like the NSA with, uh, you know, with trying to combat this problem, it's, it's you know, let's just hope deep, deep learning, machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it. Let's hope that comes of, you know, comes to fruition much, much faster than, uh, you know, than some of these problems. So. All right. So Facebook, uh, and by the way, has not really recovered its stock value. I thought it would recover pretty fast. You know, whenever we see these huge dips, we see them recover actually decently fast. And no, they're currently sitting at, uh, you know, where they were a couple months ago, which again shows just how much they've grown. Uh, you know, the fact that their stock only slid back to like May's numbers. So there you go. Yeah. What, what a tremendous loss. Though. That's just blows my mind how a company on, on paper again could, could lose that much is, is pretty darn scary it reminds me of the uh the, the, the cryptocurrency roller coasters almost <laughs> i i you know and i'm i'm kind of glad that uh, that the cryptocurrency I, I mean i know that you were on the board for one and we talked to many cryptocurrencies here on the show but there was a time there was probably a six to twelve month period where People were starting crypt, uh, were starting cryptocurrency, uh, who had no business, who, who had no reason to, and yeah. and I'm I'm kind of glad that uh, we're kind of getting behind that. But you know, blockchain, we've talked about that a lot of times here on the show. Uh, cryptocurrency in general, it does have uses, it does make sense in certain applications. But um, you know, face uh, social media is not a one size fits all. Cryptocurrency is not a one size fits all. And I'm glad to see some pullback at least because, hey, you know, I I, I, th I think markets do well when there is that pullback and reassessing and yes. restructuring. So, all right. So there's Facebook. Uh, let's see. So we have like time for maybe one or two more stories here on the program uh, before we go. And we don't talk about Venmo much. I think, I've, honestly, and this is so bad because I think Venmo, uh, you know, I've heard of the service before, but ever since they opened up to like sending money between people, the only time I've ever heard of Venmo is when scammers get people to send money over Venmo. Um, and I'd never really hear about the platform otherwise. So talk <laughs> about the company and why it's such a favorite among, uh, you know, scammers and things like that. And also I guess now hackers. Yeah. it is an interesting one. And I did, uh, I think I sent you the link on this, a little interview on this uh, on New Jersey 12. It's really yep. a, a consumer alert piece that, that I was able to, to help out on in there. And just a brief background for anybody that's not familiar with Venmo, it's really a, a free uh, digital wallet, let's call it there. So you could share payments with your buddies, your friends, and people say, hey, you could split the bill for food or for a cab ride or this or that very easily and conveniently, which is, which is kind of cool. Um, it's important to realize it's not a huge, huge number of users, decent number, 7 million active users they have. And who's the parent? It's really PayPal. PayPal is huge. I mean, they got 197 million active accounts, and they, they typically are used, uh, uh, PayPal's used by, you know, individuals that are a little more mature, let's say. And, and Venmo was trying to really target millennials to make, bring social media and, and the world of payment together so it should be on one platform was, was their thought and, and attract this younger, younger crowd. The big beef I had with it right away was that all transactions are made public by default. So I started to do some sniffing and, and, and went out there. You can go into a URL and you can start looking at all these transactions and see this girl bought this guy something and paid this much for it. You could pull up pictures of the person. You don't see the actual dollar amount in transactions, ironically. But if you think about it, in the world of, of data harvesting, anybody can go on to this in a sense of public ledger, start this information, and now you can start associating with other social media things that you pull off. And now you can see patterns 
what does Scott Schober like to uh, uh, buy? Uh, oh, well, I could see if five times he paid for food at this particular place. Now you could target him with, again, commercials and so on and so forth. So I really hate platforms like that when they, all transactions are made public and the bad guys can use that to go against you and hack and you're just putting it out there. Most of the users have no clue that it's even public information. Scary. Yeah, it, I, I certainly didn't know that. And I guess, you know, that can obviously be a bad thing, but at the same time, they can only target you through, uh, you know, again, kind of the basics. Like, so if you, let's use your restaurant example, if you really like this restaurant, they can target you with, uh, you know, maybe false links and say, hey, uh, you know, here's a coupon for this place that you like. Click on this link and you get a 50% off coupon. Is that how the hackers are, are going to get in? Or is there a, or is there an innate security flaw in Venmo? No, but basically, no, it's really, it's, it's an effective way to use social engineering techniques. I like to go to Chili's. I'm a frequent club member or something. So I occasionally will get emails that say, hey, you got this many points. Or you're entitled to a free appetizer or something stupid like mm -hmm. that. So yeah, to your point, yeah, a hacker is going to see that and say, oh, this guy eats at Chili's and he split the bill with the, his, his, his wife or a business colleague or this or that. Now they're going to do a, a targeted fishing campaign at Scott Schober and hope he's dumb enough to click on it to <laughs> retrieve his free entree or something else only to suck him in to get more personal information and, and proceed to hack. And, that, and that's how hackers work. They build the trust and use familiarity. And, and the only reason they keep doing it is because it works so well. And so many people are gullible and, and give into this all the time. <laughs> Right. So uh, we have time for just one more story and I'm going to, uh, you know, kind of go off the beaten path here. I'm not sure if you had a chance to look at it, um, but it's about Apple support and it's about malware that was actually hijacking people's phones. And it was a phishing scam where, and I think this is the part that made, you know, kind of made the headlines was that, it's not only put something up on your phone, it was malware, so it would get on your phone and then it would say, your phone has been locked due to, uh, or your phone's been locked due to detected illegal activity, immediately call Apple Care. And it would prompt you to immediately call an 888 number that would then put you on the line with, uh, you know, with an Indian call center. And yeah, they would try to, you know, kind of walk you through Apple Care quote unquote steps but they weren't actually Apple Care. So I wanted your response, you know, kind of your reaction to the fact that, you know, scammers are getting to the point where, yeah, they'll get you on the phone and they'll try to get you to hack your own device. Yeah, and, and that's telling you what, what, that hackers have taken it to the next level where they set up a dedicated phone number. They, they've got somebody on standby. They're just waiting for the sucker to call and compromise your information. And, and typically when they're effective at these scams, typically again, starting with a phishing, get you to call, they'll, they'll have a little piece, a tidbit of information about you. They'll say, hey Ben, thanks for calling. Just for security purposes, let me make sure you're really Ben and they're gonna share something that you would know, but they found it on the world well, of social media and, or something else. And very astute of you because I think one of the uh, one of the pieces of information that they had just you know innately were people's i uh, iCloud email associated with their iPhone. They were able to get that. Yeah. So you know they would you know, ask you to verify your Apple ID and you'd verify it and they'd be like that's correct. And then they go about having you install uh, essentially quote unquote support tools that would continuously uh, send you uh, you know. Uh, adware they would send you or they would track your phone and essentially they would have you install services that would then install more services that they would want on your phone so it was a persistent yeah. thing yeah and the interesting thing is this is always targeted in my my experience towards windows windows tech support again and again because there's so many windows users Apple users, typically we think we're invincible and got a stronger platform. Guess what? Nobody's 100%. We're all vulnerable, and they're just trying to spread out the hacks a little bit because 
maybe we're a little more trusting as Apple users. I don't know. But if it's starting to work, so use caution. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a numbers game. And, you know, there used to be a yeah. lot more uh, Windows users than there were Apple. But now iOS is king. So, yeah, we're all at risk. So, everyone, the music in the background means that, uh, hey, we're just about done here. Scott, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Great conversation, as always. Yeah. And I'll let you have the last word. If people want to find out more about you, where can they go? They could certainly go to my website, scottshober.com, and feel free. They could download security tips there to stay safe on their computer and in their lives, or my company website, dvsystems.com, and learn more about our wireless threat detection tools. All right. Very, very cool. And of course, we have a link to that in the show notes. And Scott, we're going to talk in just a second, but everyone else out there, you got it. Uh, hey, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern, we do a show that you should definitely check out. And uh, again, thank you for tuning in. If you're listening us to us on IRN or the podcast or the video portion, thank you so much for tuning in and be sure to catch us here next time, same time, same place. So until then, everyone have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.